the conclusion of our Return to Ravnica set review and the unrestriction of Burning Wish on episode 18 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 18 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. In this show, we're going to complete our Return to Ravnica set review and applaud the unrestriction of Burning Wish. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, you can follow us and tweet us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. Steve, I believe you have a couple of announcements for us. What do you have? Well, uh, my Return to Ravnica set review is has been published on Eternal Central. Be sure to check it out. I've got ch- checklists for vintage and legacy players. Um, very briefly, one of the major uh, observations and changes is I've um, cut a number of cards from the complete list of vintage playables. And what I've observed is that in the last year, there seems to have been a consolidation somewhat of the variety of vintage playables. So I removed cards that have no longer appeared in vintage top eights. So the, the complete checklist is a list of cards that have appeared in vintage top eights in the last year or so. And a number of cards have dropped out. And of course, there are some cards that have replaced them, like Baleful Strix, etc. But it's really surprising to see how many cards are, are dropping out of vintage like flies. What kind of cards? What do you think the cause is? You know, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that there seems to have been a consolidation in terms of certain kinds of effects. You know, like Gristlebrand, it's kind of weird. Within a couple of months, Runescar Demon has just completely disappeared. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so you see new printings come in and they sort of replace, very quickly replace cards that had seen play before them. Another announcement, though, I'd like to um, briefly mention is I had played in a tournament this past weekend with Grixis Control. The deck that, uh, Kevin, you'll recall, I was testing for the Vintage Championship. and had a great time with it, top, made top four, and posted my deck list and some notes about the deck on EternalCentral.com, so check that out. The big announcement is that I am launching a new series, article series, called Schools of Magic, the History of Vintage. So, Kevin, you had the uh, opportunity to observe me preparing this project for some time, and what it is is a year-by-year history of the format, looking at new printings, new decks, how the changes to the ban-restricted lists resulted from new decks, and what players innovated and thought about the format as it has evolved. Um, And so, you know, I've been helped out by folks like Kevin and Jacob Orlov and others. I've done a lot of research. I've put together um, some some chapters. Um, and what I'm going to do is be publishing each chapter a month uh, after the first month, looking at the history. And the whole uh, the whole premise is that, and hopefully the point that the reader will come to appreciate is that the schools of magic that really emerged, you know, Robert Hahn's famous uh, schools of magic that emerged in 93, but especially 94, 95, and 96 still continue to exist in vintage today because, well, it's the same format. So the Weissman School, the O'Brien School, those same principles exist. Um, the only thing that's evolved is the card pool and, of course, you know, some theory and strategy. 
Um, so hopefully people will really enjoy that. You know, Pat Chapin was the person who suggested I do this, and I thought it would be really cool. It took me several years to find a lot of the information I needed to get this going. But in early October, I'll publish the first article, which will be 1993 and 1994. And then each subsequent subsequent article will be one year in the history of vintage. So in the first year, in 1994, you'll be three. You'll get to see all the wild era magic decks. In 1994, you'll get to see Bo Bell's deck. You'll get to see um, the, Zach Dolan's deck, Bertrand Lestray's deck. You'll get to see all these interesting decks. And then in 1995, you'll see all the decks that I've unearthed from the history of, of magic. And you'll see how... The new card printings influence deck construction in the format. It, it's going to be really cool. I'm really excited to see the find the finished product. It's interesting that this exercise is one that is unique to vintage. The only magic format that can be traced its whole history in a direct line like this. And I, and I, I think that's a really important point that I hope the, the reader will appreciate. So they'll understand how the format you know, um, that, ex- that was created in some sense uh, in January of 1994 with the first ban and restricted list announcement continues today, that it's the same format. You know, so one of the one of the first cards that was banned in Vintage was Time Vault. And so it's going to be, you know, and it'll be interesting to see how those decks, you know, it, it's such a clear line, but we don't have a historical appreciation for the format like we should. And I'm hoping that my series will correct that. Our last announcement is also our first topic of discussion, which is the long overdue unrestriction of Burning Wish. Now, Steve, you were at the forefront of the Burning Wish deck that got this card restricted in the first place. Why don't you give our listeners a feel for what the deck was like and what was the cause for the restriction? Kind of ironic that we were just talking about the history of Vintage. No kidding. This will be one of your chapters, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's amazing. This was was 10 years ago, no, nine years ago now, but it really doesn't feel that long ago because I had so much fun with this deck. So if you do a Google search for classic developments, it's called Classic Developments, which was the title of latest developments and latest developments you'll recognize as the ongoing R&D column. Uh, I don't know who does it now. It's changed hands so many times, um, but Aaron Forsyth used to do it. But before Aaron Forsyth, Randy Bueller did it because he was the head of R&D. And Randy Bueller in that piece, which was published on December 19th, 2003, announced the restriction of Burning Wish and then posted the deck that caused it to be print, to cause it to be uh, restricted. But the reason I mention is because the list that he posted is appended with my name. <laughs> so he posted my deck list with my name on it in his article explaining why Burning Wish was going to be restricted. Uh, so I'm sort of, uh, I guess you could say I know why it was restricted, and I can talk about that right now. Burning Wish was restricted because of its abusive use in this deck that we called long, you know, other, you could call it, I guess, more accurately, Burning Tendrils. And the interaction was that you would cast Burning Wish and then in response, sacrifice Lion's Eye Diamond to find Yawgmoth's Will and reuse the Yawgmoth's Will, the mana from the Lion's Eye Diamond, the Yawgmoth's Will, then replay the Lion's Eye Diamond. So, for example, you could go something like turn one, Dark Ritual, Mox, Duress, uh, Lion's Eye Diamond, Lion's Eye Diamond, Burning Wish, sacrificing both Lion's Eye Diamond, getting the Yawgmoth's Will, and then just win on turn one right there. Uh, because you, you Yawgmoth's Will, you replay the... The, ten, the Dark Ritual, and the two Lions on Diamonds, and then play another Burning Wish for a Tutor or a Draw Spell or whatever. You have more than enough mana and resources in Storm to win the game. Um, and this deck is by far my favorite deck in the history of Vintage. You know, I'm often associated as being a Gush player, and I love Gush to death, but this is my favorite deck 
Kevin, you'll recall we had a fun exercise many years ago. I don't probably seven years ago at this point, at least called the Battle of the Band decks, where we um, we played all of the best, most iconic historical vintage decks that were no longer legal in current in their original form against each other. Uh, so we played, for example, the Masonette uh, Rack Balance deck. Tricks with four Necropotence, the Academy, the infamous Academy deck, uh, BBS, um, and got, I mean, four Gush Grow uh, against Long. And Long was the deck that went 5-0. and oh. <laughs> um, And it was really broken. I, I think I remember one game against BBS, and you can actually find my article recapping this, called The Band Plays Again, an encore for Magic's Greatest Decks. One, one game I think I remember Long one on turn one through three counterspells from BBS, where I had like, you know, turn one, Xanad Swarm, like Mana Crypt, Break Chromatic Sphere, uh, like um, Ancestral Recall, and then like with a Mox Jet, cast Demonic Consultation uh, with like a Lion's Eye Diamond and something else for Burning Wish to win the game on turn one. I mean, the deck was just absolutely insane. And it's so synergistic. You could Burning Wish for all kinds of cards. You could Demonic Consultation your entire deck away easily win you could take infinite turns with the deck do you could actually generate infinite damage which is pretty insane through a number of ways i won't go through but so burning wish was restricted just at the time that viridin was coming in i think i think it may have actually been a mistake in the original iteration the broken was lion's eye diamond um and I think the restriction of Lions at Iman addressed the problem to the extent it was a problem. I mean, I was really disappointed when it happened, not just because I love that deck and enjoy playing it, but because people really, vintage players didn't really appreciate that deck. Was that your impression, Kevin? It definitely was. There was a lot of talk about, oh, none of this needed to happen at all because that deck just wasn't that good. Yeah, people did not understand how good that deck was, and yet I think I won every single tournament I played it in. <laughs> people, people didn't know how to play it, and so they just thought Control beat it, but it wasn't even really close. And people, for example, I think would, would play you know, blindly into counter magic, sacrificing lines out I'm discarding their hand instead of understanding how you actually approach the control matchup. Um, and, and when Burning Wish was restricted, I started playing Death Long. I made multiple pop eights with Death Long. And then when Grim Tutor became legal, I played Grim Long. And that deck did very well in a number of tournaments. Won a lot of power with that in the Star City Games Power 9 circuit. But now we have Burning Wish back again. So all of the features of the deck, Sans Lion's Eye Diamond, that you've cited are still legal. Basically, this deck is still legal, except for the Lion's Eye Diamonds. How is it, then, that it's safe to do this now? Well, I think you and I both agree that Burning Wish is probably the safest unrestriction uh, that was on the restricted list. Um, and we agree with that for a number of reasons. One, I don't even necessarily think Burning Wish should have been restricted in the first place. But secondly, the M10 rules changes really brought down the power level of Burning Wish because Burning Wish used to be able to retrieve exiled cards, which used to be called remove from game. But with the creation of the exiled zone, uh, you can no longer burning wish for cards that were removed from game. For example, after you demonic consultation them away or remove them or have them forcibly removed with necropotence or uh, or just have already exiled, like replaying the Yawgmoth's will or a card within a Yawgmoth's will. Um, so, for example, it used to be the case with Cunning Wish that you could play Ancestral Recall and then you would exile the Ancestral Recall or RFG it with the Psychotog and then Cunning Wish for Ancestral again. Uh, similarly, you could play Yawgmoth's Will, cast Mind's Desire within Yawgmoth's Will, um, you know, maybe see a bunch of mana and a Burning Wish, Burning Wish for Mind's Desire again, you know, or, or Tendrils again or something of that nature that had been exiled. Well, you can no longer do that. 
Also, additional printings have benefited other archetypes to the tune of Chalice of the Void and Sphere of Effects, Lodestone Golem, and a number of other things such that the environment that we play in now is dramatically different and much more hateful to this kind of archetype. Right, so this this deck was created and, and really ran rampant run ran rampant during the sort of primitive era of workshop and so workshops basically had sphere of resistance to combat it and that's pretty much it tangle wire was tangle wire isn't even that great because you can actually sacrifice a land lion's eye diamond and use it while it's tapped that's one of the few areas in which lion's eye diamond is not lion's eye diamond is not strictly inferior to black lotus because you have to actually have to tap black lotus to use it not the case with lion's eye diamond this deck was this deck was just brutal. Was just brutal. Um, so to make it work in the modern environment, you 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 need to have a really innovative design. In some respect, I think I figured that out. Kevin's seen my deck list, but I'm I'd like to play it in the near future, so I'm not going to share that right now. Well, to that end, then Steve, and since we're in the mode of set reviewing, I say we predict the top eight appearances for Burning Wish in the next three months, like we're going to do with the rest of Return to Ravnica. What do you think? I think Burning Wish is going to make some appearances. I'm going to predict, and I'm not sure when I'll get to play this, but I think if I if I do get to play it and I do as well as I think I'm going to, to do, there are going to be some imitators. I'm going to say 11 to 12. I'll go 11 top eights. I think that the card is capable of doing that well. I think it, it is good enough to make those performances, but history has taught us that players don't catch on to playing this card as well as we might think. So I'm going to say that you're about right, except that people won't pick up on it as much and take take it to the top eight as much. And I'm going to go with six. Well, I think I think there's a lot to be said for what for, for your assessment. The the deck lists I've seen in the Mandarin are very poor, and I don't think that those are going to be successful. Um, and I also think that there just there just aren't enough players who frankly have experience with this archetype anymore because it's I mean for us it's. This is one of our favorite decks, but I don't think a lot of people were around to play original long, let alone grim long or death wish long. <laughs> so, um, you know, or even pitch long, right? Right. To grim long, you know. So I, I think that it's it, you may be right. It might take some time. There's a, I'm also concerned that you know I have some really innovative things in my deck that it'll do really well for a tournament or two, but then if it starts picking up, people will be able to hit it out with some targeted hate which I will not mention. <laughs> there are a lot more weapons these days. Yeah, and it's also the case that if decks do really well, it's much easier to implement a few tactics to fight them. So that's just the case with every every archetype. You know, Steve, there was one other announcement that went along with Burning Wish, and you have expressed some criticism over it online. They announced they're shifting the Band and Restricted list updates to coincide with new set releases, such that it'll be announced beforehand and effective when each new set comes out what is your concern over that change i have a couple of concerns i think my my primary concern has to do with measuring the effects or clearly knowing the effects of a ban and restriction or restriction or unrestriction maybe a little bit of history will provide some context you know originally when the dc was created the duelist convocation would announce a banning or restriction at its whim whenever it felt the need to do so uh later it created a regular schedule, so a quarterly schedule. And the announcement would take place first of the four major quarters, January 1st, March 1st, June 1st, and December 1st. And then they'd be effective the first of the next month. Then they changed again to announcing the restrictions or bannings or unrestricted the 20th of the month and then taking effect at the same time. I think it engenders the conflation of the DCI and the wizard. So 
The DCI is ostensibly a separate body. And all too often, people get confused about that. They'll say, when Wizards restricts, when Wizards R&D bans this card. Wizards R&D does not ban cards. The DCI does. And while there may be some overlap in those bodies, or in fact, a sort of obvious relationship between them, they are at least superficially separate entities. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing for the game. It is certainly intuitive. you know. So explain what you think might be the rationale for this coinciding of announcements. I think it is intuitive for players in the sense that when environments change because of new printings, it makes sense to consolidate changes. So if a new card is going to come out and change an environment, it also makes sense to have other changes happening at the same time because that's when players want to change their decks. And I think it matters more. It makes more sense for newer formats like Standard. I think that while it is definitely true that it is intuitive, I think it really complicates the assessment of what the effect of banning or restriction is. So you know, here, here's my main criticism. If you are introducing 300 new cards, 300 plus new cards into a card pool, at the same time, you're going to be restricting the major card. How can you know what the effect of the restriction is vis-a-vis the effect of the new printings? Right? So that before, when you, when you ban a card or you ban multiple cards, you have tournament evidence. You have the pre-ban tournament data and the post-ban tournament data. Now you're going to have, just for example, let's take the Mirrodin banning, right? So they banned like the Artifact Lands in 2004 or 2005. I don't remember when it was. And they banned something else, maybe even. And then imagine if that had coincided with the first new set of the big, the next block, Right. Well, how would you know what the effect of the new block is vis-a-vis the effect of the bannings? You wouldn't. So do you think that this is going to lead to inappropriate changes, bans or restrictions or unrestrictions? I don't think so. I don't think necessarily that's what's going to happen, but it is going to happen. It's going to make it much harder to tell what the effects are. And the effects matter for a number of reasons. One, if you ban a card, um, especially if you restrict or or ban a card in in an internal format, you really want to know what the effect is. And the reason is because you want to know when you're deciding or evaluating someday whether to unban or unrestrict that card, how impactful the restriction or, or banning was, right? So in Legacy, we banned Survival of the Fittest, and you saw immediately how the metagame shifted without complicating that metagame shift because of a bunch of brand new sets or a bunch of brand new cards. And similarly in Vintage, you know, when you restrict a card, we've been able to discern very clearly what the effect on the metagame is without having to be confused because you've got a bunch of new printings. So you could imagine a card in Vintage where there's a card that's very problematic, you restrict it, and then the next set that comes in at the same time actually props up or creates a new deck that would have combated the original deck. Mm -hmm. You know, it might not have been a direct hoser, but maybe it would have changed the equation, right? And so that's, that's that's my main concern, is that... You know, whenever you make new printings, you change the context for a decision to ban or restrict. And you could say, oh, well, the DCI is smart. They'll, you know, since most of them work at Wizards, they can probably tell, you know, if a new card's going to be in the pipeline that will affect their decision. Yeah, that's true, but it's not always a direct effect, right? I mean, there may be indirect relationships that not that people can't even necessarily perceive. And we know especially that they do not design for vintage and therefore... They, they do design. There are cards that are designed for vintage. They don't test vintage, though. That's true. So I guess you're right. They they are on record that they have designed some cards. They certainly don't test vintage. It's not part of their future future league. They're taking the approach that if we design cards with this format in mind, that 
as long as it's not something ridiculously broken, then hosers and other tactical cards are safe bets like, say, Dryad Militant. And those kind of cards are not the kind of things that are going to need to be restricted or banned. But to your point, a card like Dryad Militant might address an issue that has cropped up that they may be restricting too quickly. Well, I, I, and I, my criticism is not something that obvious. So what I'm saying is there certainly, it certainly could be the case that the DCI would announce a banning restriction of a card that would be almost immediately addressed by a new printing. Mm-hmm. But that's not really my main concern because that's, I think that is foreseeable, right? You know, the DCI probably has enough people on it who are in Wizards who can foresee that sort of interaction. Okay. My, my concern is something less obvious. Like, for example, well, first of all, there are often indirect relationships. So, you know, when Delver was printed, Delver has contributed to more aggro control decks in Vintage, which may have the secondary effect of keeping down or helping balance out certain other kinds of strategies. You know, it's where it, in, in the rise of Delver may have a secondary effect that impacts a decision to restrict a card out of a yet a third archetype, Right. So that's the kind of secondary or hard to see relationships, indirect relationships. So for example, if you're there's this card, this creature that is really good, and then we print Tarmogoyf next. Well, Tarmogoyf becomes a good blocker or helps prop up a new deck or an aggro deck. It makes the original deck not nearly as threatening, but not in it's not in a hoser or obvious way, like a dryad militant. Mm-hmm. You know, and, the, and even Deeper, I mean, the fact of the matter is that Wizards has many occasions been unable to frankly see the effects of new printings. I'm sure that they had no idea how good Delver was. I mean, I, I'm, pre- I'm pretty confident in that. Yep. But even, even more so, I mean, both Dredge and Storm were mechanics that I think they grossly underestimated in both cases. I mean, I think they're on record as saying Dredge and Storm are much better than we thought, right? Mm-hmm. They are. And so, you know, you could imagine like just before Future Sight, right, like was printed. They did restrict a bunch of cards, but let's say they restricted something that Dredge becomes a natural predator of. Well, maybe like you would not have foreseen that this deck Dredge was going to be created or become so good because of become so much better because of Future Sight. But maybe Dredge becomes the natural predator for the dominant deck or the, the problematic tactic, you know, and if that happens, I think what I'm trying to say, and I think you get my point there, is that metagames are complex systems. And whenever you introduce new playables into these complex systems, they have unpredictable system-wide effects. And restrictions are necessarily changing the the system because they're taking something that is the heart of the system and ripping it out. And therefore, the entire system dynamics will, will be have to be remapped. And when you... So both new sets and restrictions are huge system dynamic shifts, system shifts. They, they prompt changes in the system. And I think that when you do that, you make it much harder to, to discern uh, in retrospect and in, the, in looking prospectively what the effect of a restriction might be or has been. And that's problematic for a host of reasons, some of which we've mentioned, some of which we haven't. Taking your concern to the conclusion, then, it seems to me that you're proposing a system whereby they make ban and restricted changes at exactly the opposite cycle. You're, you're the the pole right. between set releases should be when they do that. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. I think that that, that makes the most sense from an analytical perspective. You know, in the short term, this might not be problematic. I think, especially in eternal formats, it seems to me it's extremely problematic for non-eternal formats. I mean, just taking the Mirrodin example I came up with, right? Right. I mean, you're going to ban all these cards. How are you supposed to know when you have a... You know, standard is composed of two blocks and a, <laughs> and a core set. You know, 
the anchor block sets are the, the biggest transformative metagame changes there, there can be. Yep. Right? Yep. I mean, how can you possibly evaluate whether the banning will be necessary? All I'm saying is I think it's extremely problematic from an analytical perspective. On the flip side, though, the format that is at the greatest risk standard is also the one that they test the most. So they're going to have the most information with which to counteract this issue. But I think in theory, you are still correct. There's no way that under 20 people at Wizards, whoever many people are on the design team, and they're smaller than that, yeah. can possibly accurately predict the metagame. And they don't. They know that they don't. They admit it over and over and over again. That's true. We've been at this exercise for, for decades, for you know over a decade now, almost two decades. And I think that's... I think they have demonstrated that they take bannings, especially bannings, but bannings and restrictions, et cetera, very seriously these days. When they restricted thirst for knowledge, we could immediately measure the impact of it, mm -hmm. right? And that now people want thirst unrestricted. Well, how can we know what the, you know, whether the restriction is necessary? One way we know is because we measure the pre, the pre-format and post, post-format, right? Mm -hmm. If you have like a brand new printing at the same time, like let's say Snapcaster made it was printed at the same time, thirst was restricted. You're conflating things that we just can no longer know. You know, in the short term, it might not be a big deal. But in the long term, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that the DCI members contemplating restriction or a banning or unbanning or unrestriction are going to be thinking about past decisions, right? I mean, they do this, right? When, when they ban or restrict something and it has a terrible impact, no impact, or was extremely unpopular, the DCI cares about that. We know that for a fact. The DCI has gone on basically on record saying they regretted restricting so many cards in Vintage in, 2000, in 2008, right? They regret, regret restricting all five of those blue cards at once. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the point is that oftentimes when banning or restricting, they'll make analogies backwards, right? So, oh, we really want this card. You know, they'll think about how effective or ineffective their policy was in the past and why. They'll, you know, human beings reason through analogies. That's what we do. And the fact of the matter is that 10 years from now, maybe not a year from now, maybe not five years from now, 10 years from now, you will have no solid data or very little low confidence data, very low high confidence data um, in terms of knowing the impact of your bans and restrictions. If they are major structural changes, then I think you're actually right on. I wonder if you would propose this alternate schedule to them, what they would say. I imagine that they were still heavily influenced by the customer experience of when things change. Yeah, I mean, I have no doubt of that, but that's, you know, that's, <laughs> you can't, you can't always cater <laughs> to, to what is most intuitive to customers when it comes to things like this. I think the anal analytical data really matters, and it matters for all the reasons that we've stated just now. Let's hit the rest of Return to Ravnica then. And to start us off, we've got a card that we and a lot of other people are very excited about in the vintage context. That is Rest in Peace. This is a white enchantment for one white, one, sorry, sorry, got to use <clears throat> my R&D terminology for one W. And it says, when Rest in Peace enters the battlefield, exile all cards from all graveyards. If a card or token would be put into a graveyard from anywhere, exile it instead. This is a very powerful impact on dredge in Vintage, as well as splash damage for other cards like Snapcaster Mage, Yawgmoth's Will, etc. Very similar to Graftigger's Cage. 
Steve, I think this card is poised to make a big impact. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, this card is, in my opinion, the, the star of this set uh, in a number of ways. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you remember this or, or were there, but Paul Mastriano and Brian DeMars, I mentioned this in my set review, had uh, tried to devise what would be the most awesome, perfect anti-dredge card they could print. And they printed something that was basically like a one-mana artifact Leyline of the Void that had both Shroud and Indestructibility. And I told both Paul and Brian, this card, rest in peace, this card is better. <laughs> better because it has both the Morning Tide effect and Leyline. That is a Tormod's Crypt, the Graveyard, and has Leyline. It's like a two-for-one against Dredge. It's a two-for-one against Dredge, and that has so many effects. I mean, uh, you know, just so for example... One of the problems with Leyline of the Void, the two major problems with Leyline of the Void are, first of all, if it if it's bounced or if it's bounced or destroyed, it may not have had any effect. It may not have had any effect, and if it's if it's exactly, and if it's bounced mid game, then they can it takes you a long time to replay it because it costs four mana. So you know if they play like bounce it on turn two, then they can quickly fill their graveyard and even combo out and strip it out of your hand before you have an opportunity to replay it. This card. They can bounce it, but then you, they they actually have to get dredgers into the graveyard, get a couple of therapy into the graveyard, get creatures into play, and flash it back before you can play it again, which is very hard to do because you can play it immediately, next turn immediately. Mm-hmm. Then it will nuke their graveyard again. So when you replay Lay on the Void, the, the second major problem with Leon, first is that it's hard to replay, but the, the second major problem is that all the stuff that they put in their graveyard in the interim remain in their graveyard. That's not the case for this card. Um, this card is very, it's a turn one play, one in a white. Um, and when it's replayed, it has the Tormod's Crypt effect. So I see, I, I, this is the best. Okay, so there's several, several levels of this. First, it's the best anti-dredge card in the set, the best card in the set. Second, I think it's the best anti-dredge card of all time. Third, and we can get to this in a second, I think it's the best white card in vintage. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll justify that statement, which I think is much more controversial in a little bit. Wow. Yeah, the the best white card in vintage. <laughs> so out of what I don't know, twelve thousand printings, it's the best white card in the entire format. I think this card is main deckable in certain archetypes. Do you agree? For sure. And I think that this card may single handedly cause an uptick or resurgence of white decks in vintage. You may see white splashed into decks that it hasn't it isn't being played in currently. Control decks, aggro decks maybe. You may see aggro decks do even better. You may see new decks. You may see Bant, for example, that we've talked about in reference to Dryad Militant running this main inside and those decks succeeding even more because of it. Right. So setting, So let's go to the controversial comment I make because it, it dovetails with what you just said. What are the best white cards in Vintage? Setting aside all the hate bears. I mean, the best white cards in Vintage, there's only one white card on the restricted list, Balance. Mm-hmm. Right. There's one other competitor swords to plowshares mm-hmm. i mean besides from those cards i don't what could possibly be in the running for the best white card in vintage. there isn't anything that's one of the reasons why white is so underplayed in the format that it really is only used as a support card for the two you just listed yeah and and, and balance doesn't even really see much play so i think my my point is that if this card in sort of when people are deciding what their third or second color is going to be, if they decide it's going to be white, it's going to be in a large part because of this card. And if that's the case, then that makes it the most important white card in the format because then people are going to play this, then they're going to add balance, and they're going to add swords, you know, and then you can 
I think that this is a natural play, home has a natural home in Lansdale, has a natural, uh, you know, as a cyborg card and certain other archetypes. But the other thing related to my comparison to Leyline of the Void is that I think this this card not only affects the format in terms of what colors people decide to play, I think it will affect the format in terms of sideboard construction as well. Because, and I talk about this again in my set review, the typical rule of thumb right now, I think, is that you basically have to dedicate six to seven cards to dredge in your sideboard. I think this card actually makes that rule no longer the case because it's so effective at both ends, at nuking the graveyard and then keeping the graveyard nuked, that you no longer need to have two or three anti-dredge cards deployed during the course of the game, uh, that you can actually just play this. It will do its work for so long that you maybe only need one other. I think you can basically run like four rest in peace and maybe one other card and be just fine, if not fewer even. I am not as optimistic that this card is good enough to win you a game on its own, though. It's much better than everything else we've got, so it it will win some games that other cards didn't or don't. But in the example you gave, if Dredge... you, you when you need to beat Dredge, you need to beat them on games in Game 3 when they're on the play. So mm-hmm. if Dredge is on the play with a Bazaar, and you go Landmox, rest in peace, yep. you are still susceptible, though, on their next turn to them playing City of Brass, evoking Wispmare, and proceeding with their game plan. Yeah, and what, which is what? It's, what can they do? Because next turn you're just going to replay it. No, no, no. They, I said evoking Wispmare to destroy this. Yeah, they're going to play the City of Brass on turn 2, mm-hmm. evoke Wispmare to destroy it. Yeah. And, and activate bizarre. They're a turn behind, but it's not inherently any better than any other sideboard card that right. makes them a turn behind. So I'm saying I think you can get away with just four of these and not actually need other dredge hate. Maybe you can play four of these in like a enlightened tutor. The other thing is think about the fact that four chain of vapor no longer really matter. So Wismare is, is critical, as you pointed out. But Chain of Vapor is pretty useless against this card. I was going to comment on that. I think one of the impacts will be a diminishment in Chain of Vapors in Dredge sideboards because it's just a wretched play against this card. That's, and that's huge. I mean, Dredge literally won the Vintage Championship on the basis of a Chain of Vapor on a Dark Steel, a Blightsteel Colossus. And that's one of those un, not unforeseen, but unpredictable effects like you were observing that this card could change their sideboard, which makes other cards better. It makes Blightsteel Colossus better against Dredge if they can't play Chain of Vapor as a universal answer. And Blightsteel is already an all-time high because of Dredge slowing itself down to combat like Grafdigger's Cage. Mm-hmm. This could have incredible, incredible repercussions. Yeah, the clear limitation is white. I mean, what decks can actually use white? Grodex aren't going to be playing white. You know, the Grixis control deck, which is the dominant deck in Vintage right now, mm-hmm. does not play white and doesn't really want white. It needs red for against shops. It needs black because black is the second best color and, mm-hmm. and, and blue is its core. So, I mean, the, the key limitation here is I think this is this is by far the best dredge, anti-dredge card of all time. The question is, its ability to keep dredge in check will be almost directly proportionate to the number of people who are willing to make the shift into white the archetypes that can reasonably run white. I think there are easily five different decks that will play this card, though. And then it's just a matter of good deck construction and how they jockey for position in the metagame relative to everything else. But I think you could see this, you will see this in Noble Fish, in Bant, in Landstill lists with white, in modified Grixis lists that switch to white, and in Bomberman sideboards. I think that's just a short list. You could probably also see this in some other decks that are much more on the fringe, like 
green white hate bears i mean in bomberman cyborg this neuters the bomberman combo it does but a lot of bomberman players will quickly point out that that's not how you win most of your games i mean you look at the top eight list with dark confidant that is more like what i'm talking about it's a like the grixis control deck with white instead of red it's got your bobs it's got your tinker your your key vault your all the same control elements your jace that's the kind of deck i'm talking about that's not actually a traditional bomberman but it's a hybrid between the two i think that deck will definitely still play these in the sideboard if it means that's how i get to beat dredge that's fair so the real question is then how much of an impact is this going to be so we talked about graph digger's cage during our last first half of this set review and i mean we referenced it from the from long ago about how we estimated the size and we underestimated the size by a little bit how many top eight appearances for rest in peace are you going to predict then well again i think that the key limitation here is white mm-hmm. and not just not just in the narrow sense of what decks can play white but what decks will ultimately want to play white because the cost of playing the opportunity cost of playing white is so high um, I think, you know, white is fine. I mean, when you pair Rest in Peace with Swords of Plowshares, you have some really good answers. And Swords of Plowshares is unbelievably good against workshops um, and uh, Rest in Peace, but it just is Swords significantly or sufficiently and better than Ingot Tour. Mm-hmm. Granted, you get to run Swords Main. I think that this card, I, I, I think, again, I think it's the best card from the set. It's the best card, the best anti-dredge card, and the best white card in the format. I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say... Okay, how many how many graph diggers cages ended up being played, Kevin? Oh geez. I really can't remember. It was was it fifty or sixty? I'm gonna go I'm gonna go ahead and say eighteen. Well, a little more conservative than I expected. Well again, just because the, the decks that you listed aren't exactly the most mainstream decks in the format. Right? The most popular decks in the format are going to be Grixis Control, Workshops, and Dredge. It's true. This card does not go into any of the top three right now. It can definitely, it, it can't even be played in Oath or anything like that. I, I mean, I, I guess it can be played in Oath. You have Forbidden Orchards. I suspect that this card, I think it will help, like, Blue-White Landstill should emerge as an archetype. And there are also some combo possibilities with this card that, that are interesting as well. I mean, everyone knows the Helm, Helm combo, but there are others besides. So I uh, I mean, I I just see this the limitation as being white. If this was a black card, <laughs> I would say I would say like sixty, <laughs> yeah, so like seventy, yeah, you know? easily. But given that this is a white card, I just I just don't see a lot of space at the moment in the next three months at least. I believe a little more strongly in this card. I'm going to go with twenty five. Oh. I, I think that white I think that white as a color gets a big boost from this and therefore you'll see multiple archetypes coming out of the woodwork with greater performances. Might as well have just said nineteen. Just to get, <laughs> just to get me. No, I'm not trying to price this right you here. I'm right. I'm trying to be accurate without gauging my response based on yours. I'll go first on the next one. How's that? <laughs> oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> The next one is Epic Experiment. Now, this card is a very fun design, and it immediately got the attention of a lot of vintage players because it has a certain flair that I think dovetails well with the vintage format. You can tell our listeners what it does. Yep, it is an instant Epic Experiment is for X blue red. It's not an instant. It's a sorcery. Sorry, I was got excited there. Exile the top X cards of your library. For each instant and sorcery card with converted mana cost X or less among them, you may cast that card without playing its mana cost. That, excuse me, then put all cards exiled this way that weren't cast into your graveyard. This is basically Genesis Wave for 
non-permanence. Genesis. Genesis wave is green, green, green X for the same effect, except if there are lands, creatures, artifacts, they're permanent cards, you can put them into play. So a lot of people looked at this card and immediately thought, well, vintage, that's the home of all the broken instants and sorceries, right? I'm going to cast this for a measly four to six X and reveal my time walk and ancestral recall and maybe a dark ritual and then play my Yawgmoth's will, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or my red rituals and my grape shot and my empty the warrens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and so it's pretty easy to construct a list of 60 vintage cards that's mostly instants and sorceries and say, hey, this is going to be awesome if I reveal four to six of these and they're all good. I think that that mentality is overly rosy and in any vintage deck worth its salt, a lot of the accelerants and a lot of the mana producers in general are not instants and sorceries. And if you build a deck that's overly weighted in that direction, you are basically making yourself weak to the metagame as it stands right now. It's certainly possible to have a blue-red style deck that has a lot of answers to workshops, don't get me wrong, but I do not think that this card trying to ramp up your mana count just to reveal more cards is the way to go. This is a card that really benefits from a table. So <laughs> in my set review, I created a table. And, you know, this goes back to popular psychology, Howard Gardner and his book, Changing Minds, that when you can represent an idea in multiple ways, I mean, this is why Venn diagrams or charts are so helpful in clarifying things. You know, this card, I think at first blush, looks potentially quite broken. But when you sort of put it out in the tabular form, like I do in my in my article, where you say, okay, what is the for each of these possible casting costs, what are the potential benefits that you get? Then you really begin to see the limitations of it. And we can just go through that right now. So, right, if we play it for two mana, you get what benefit, Kevin? Zero. Zero. If you play it for three mana, you get what potential benefit? Max benefit. One card. One card off the top of your library that you can play for free only if what? Only if it's converted mana cost is one or less, and it's an instant or sorcery. <laughs> so if, if three mana and two mana, this card is terrible. Mm-hmm. Unplayably terrible. Four mana, you get what benefit? You get maybe two cards if they cost two or less. And if they're sorcerers or instants. Mm-hmm. So if four mana, you get you get the net one card as long as it costs two or less, both cost two or less. Right. That's still pretty awful. For four mana, you can get, you know, a lot more than that in vintage. Chase the mind sculptor. Factor fiction. Mm-hmm. Get five mana, you get to do you get what benefit? Maybe three cards, instants or sorceries that cost three or less. You start to get at least into some better cards that way. So let's just keep going. It's six mana, you get what benefit? Four cards. It costs four or less. Mm-hmm. And it's seven mana, it's unplayable because there are no seven mana cards in vintage that you hard cast. Right. Let's just be clear about this. About 99.9% of the non-artifact card pool, let's say the 99.9% of the instant or sorcery card pool is cost three or less, cost four or less. The exceptions are Mind's Desire, Force of Will, Force of Will, Misdirection, and Gush. Everything else costs four or less. So I think it's six mana. This this is in theory playable because there are cards in mana and blue cards that cost six that are, they're, they're really good, like, Bargain and Desire are playable. Mm-hmm. So the problem is your six mana is still a hell of a lot. So if you're really going to get any benefit from this, you're going to have to be playing it for five or six. That'll capture most cards. In theory, that would be playable, except that if you're if you're revealing three cards off the top of your library and you're not controlling exactly what those are, the problem is the limitation that's only instance or sorcery. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the key problems. I think like if this said exile the top X cards of your library then you could play all of them with X cost, X or less. This would be much more interesting because then you could play Jace. It 
X equals four. Mm -hmm. You could play cards like Grim Monolith. You and, and so you could actually set up things like uh, one of the most special combo cards with this that I talked about in my set review is Transmute Artifact. So if it didn't have that limitation, for example, you could reveal Transmute Artifact, Grim Monolith, right? And then you could play the Grim Monolith, tap it in response to, set, to casting Transmute Artifact, mm -hmm. you know, to actually tinker up Evolve or something. But this only gets instants or sorceries. This is only playable at five or six mana. And then only gets instants or sorceries. I just think it's way too limited. Like I said, it's theoretically possible to construct a deck that reliably casts this for a high amount of mana, maybe five, six, seven mana. But see, I'm not even sure that it is invented because of the reliance on artifact accelerants. That's the problem. No, no, I mean, I mean casting the card for oh, with, yeah. with that much mana. Yeah. You can play a Belcher-style list that red rituals up to five, an X of five or six of this with some reliability, but that deck is weak. <laughs> Basically, yeah. that deck it has natural predators in the environment because it doesn't even exist today when you've got cards like Empty the Warrens that are much better. And plus, this card has no synergy with any of the defensive spells you might play in a deck like that. Exactly. Half the flips that you're going to make with the Mind's Desire are going to be mana accelerants. They allow, even though all the cards of the Mind's Desire are for free, mm -hmm. the cards draw off the cards you play with Mind's Desire mana. Yep, and at any cost less than, say, six, this card is, compares unfavorably with many other blue-based draw engines that we've got. Well, it doesn't scale up in any way. You can't play it for two or three or even four mana. You have to play it at five. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really problematic. The other, the other limitation that I don't like about this card is the fact that you have to put all the cards revealed on the stack. Like, at least with Mind's Desire, you can actually... So, for example, you know, if this were to reveal like a preordained and a Grim Monolith and a Transmute Artifact, you might actually be able to... And let's say it allowed you to play the Artifact. You could actually... Uh, well, let's say it doesn't. Let's just say... If you just took away the clause, it says... Or, for example, inserted a clause, it says, until end of turn, sure. you may cast that card without playing its mana cost. Then you could actually like play a Preordain into a Grim Monolith, right? And then play the Grim Monolith, then cast the Transmute Artifact you reveal with Epic Experiment. Right. That would give it even more flexibility, given the limitations of this card. It's, pretty bad i don't think we need to go any further this i joked and said i'd go first this time i'm predicting zero zero all right let's move on to something that's a little more rosy and that's vandal blast this is a sorcery for red destroy target artifact you don't control overload 4r and for anyone who's not following along at home overload says you may cast this spell for its overload cost if you do change its text by replacing all instances of target with each which would mean this card would read destroy each artifact you don't control meaning for five mana for for one mana you've got a single shattering spree or overload or ingot chewer style effect that's what red mana is basically good for in vintage these days <laughs> and for five mana four r at sorcery speed you can destroy all of your opponent's artifacts, which is in the workshop matchup a tricky mana cost to Not achieve. Five. I said five. Yeah. Yeah, but it's six mana because you get. Wait a second. Oh, no, it's it's five total. It's not in addition. That's right. It's five total. It replaces the mana cost, which is tricky to achieve. But if you do, it's a major blowout against the workshop deck. So obviously, this card is trading fairly at the one red mana cost to destroy a single artifact. And so it competes directly with things like Shattering Spree and Ingot Chewer. And then the upside is pretty large if you can get there. Before we get to our full analysis, why don't we make our prediction? Because I, I would like to make my analysis in the context of my prediction. Fascinating. Uh, uh, go, go ahead, then. I think zero. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, that's 
I, I think that's very interesting. I am a little bit higher on this card than zero, but I think I see what you're getting at. Uh, without going into the issue any further, I'm going to go ahead and predict three. <laughs> now, why don't you go ahead and talk about why we had that discrepancy there? I don't like overload as a as a mechanic, especially for vintage. You know, one of the things that all the overload cards have is a fairly simple um, simple effect. Now, most of them are terrible because they're combat related, but th- the problem is that it's such a binary. Overload is this all or, no- or or very almost nothing thing, where you get like this tremendous effect or this extremely minuscule effect. You know, so I think it compares very unfavorably with kickers like Replicate or Kicker. Okay. I, I just I think there's a very simple analysis here. This card is worse than Shattering Spree. And Shattering Spree sees very little play right now. I mean, there's almost no case. So Shattering Spree for three is red, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Overload for three or more is five. I think for the most part, when you play against a workshop deck, you're probably not going to need there. You know, they'll have like a Mox, a workshop, an Ancient Tomb, and maybe two other artifacts in play, right? Like, let's say it's your own. You know, you'll never play the Overload cost ever. Anyway, how does Overload interact with Spheres anyway, by the way? It's just like casting it, so it just spears okay. at as they would. So, yeah, the, even worse, even worse. Uh, I just, I just, I just don't think this card. For, it's very simple. You can pay red, red, and kill two artifacts with with Shattering Spree. You cannot do that with Vandal Blast. I think Vandal Blast is almost strictly inferior. Shattering. Here's why I'm predicting three. Steve, have you ever seen an ingot chewer in play? Yes. You know how some how much somebody paid for that ingot chewer, assuming it's not their turn. Yep. They paid the same as this overload cost. Yep. Granted, that doesn't take into account Thorn of Amethyst, so it's not yep. a one-for-one one comparison perfect, but I completely disagree that you're never going to pay the overload on this. And when you do, it is a much... I didn't say you're never going to pay the overload. Yeah, you, you, know, you basically did. No, no, no. I, I just don't think that if you have the choice, the design choice of playing a Shattering Spree or this, I, I think that you're going to be playing a Shattering Spree because the marginal utility of Shattering Spree is so much greater. Oh, well, I don't agree there either. But let me get back to the point is I think the overloading this is a very realistic thing. Not not the most common, mind you, but realistic. Sure. With regard to Shattering Spree, the, my primary criticism of your analysis is that decks that are running Ingot Chewer don't want to have two sources of red mana in play, much less three. That's the reason why Shattering Spree doesn't see play is people don't want to fetch up two Valks against workshops, and it's difficult to do and tricky to time sometimes. That's the bigger reason why you never see people playing RRR to destroy three artifacts is because red mana is the sort of thing you want to fetch once because you might never get it again. Here's the other side, though. So I I hear you, but here's the the other problem. Shattering Spree can kill a Chalice at one. (laughs) Well, of course, so can this and can Ingot Chewer. Yeah, but this can only kill a chalice at one <laughs> if you play it for the overload. That's right. That's right. I, I'm not arguing that. My point is simply that I think this has, I think this has a valid alternate upside that some players will take advantage of and have a little bit of success with. I don't think this is going to become the standard by any stretch. I think that's still ingot chewer, but I do think this might be second place for monocolored cards. I think this might be second place after ingot chewer. See, that's, I guess that's where I disagree. I think Shattering Spree is pretty miles ahead of this. But it sees no play. No, it actually does see some play, but very marginal. Okay. Well, we'll see how the analysis bears out. I think this card is yeah. playable. I mean, you may be right. You may be right, but that doesn't mean you're right in your analysis. Uh, I mean, that's your I, point. Yeah, I mean, you, you may be the case. I mean, what we'd have to do is compare, at the end of the day, how many Shattering Spree saw top eights compared to this. I, I, I will firmly predict that whatever the case may be, there are more Shattering Sprees than this. 
Interesting. I'm going to make a note here. Did Shattering Spree outperform? Yeah, outperform. That's a very good follow-up question for when we do our analysis after the fact. I'm already excited about our future report card on Return to Ravnica. (laughs) Favorite card. (laughs) I'd like to next talk about Deathrite Shaman. And to me, this card is a little little divisive. There's been a lot of discussion about this card in the greater community, vintage community, and I just don't get it. Deathrite Shaman... For a single Golgari mana, which is green-black hybrid, I don't know how to say that in R&D speak, Creature Elf Shaman, 1-2, with three abilities, tap, exile, target land card from a graveyard, add one mana of any color to your mana pool, black tap, exile target instant or sorcery card from a graveyard, each opponent loses two life, green tap, exile target creature card from a graveyard, you gain two life. I simply don't understand the excitement over this card from a vintage perspective at all, especially not in light of other cards in this set like Dryad Militant and Rest in Peace. Steve, what's your assessment? I have to confess something. Now that I'm reading it again, I'm, I wish that I had talked about this card in my set review, and I actually think so, you know, um, in, in almost every single one of my set reviews, I, I analyze every single card. This time, I did not. I just entertained and assessed the cards I thought were playable or nearly playable. This card is much more interesting now that I look at it again. I think the critical ability is the middle one, the exiling, instant or sorcery, and then the clause after that. Each opponent loses two life. Essentially, that makes us a one-mana card that basically does what Grim Lava Mancer does. Grim Lava Mancer is... But, but of course, Grim Lava Mancer can target creatures in play. And Vintage... It seems to me that hitting this is this is two damage every turn and disrupts the graveyard. Or you can exile an opponent's fetch land or whatever or wasteland and actually generate mana from it. This is actually quite versatile. Quite. I uh, I think the key thing here is do the you know it seems to me it's pretty clear there's a pecking order right. The middle thing is probably the most important, followed by the first, followed by the last. You know, and each of these is different, is good in different matchups. So, you know, against workshops, exiling land from their graveyard or even your own to add a mana is very good. So you'll actually, this functions like a bird of paradise, which I actually think is quite good in in the current metagame. Um, And then, and that requires no mana. Against the control decks, you get to slowly bleed their life. If you have any other creatures in play, you can probably take them out. Um, And this also stymies uh, Snapcaster Mage. And the last ability is good in the fish in, in, in aggro mirrors, right? You not only you not only can remove creatures from their graveyard, but you gain so you can prevent any recursion that might happen, and and you can gain life, get a little bit of a buffer. I think the question I'm not sure if any one of these would be playable, but the question is, if, does the sum total, does the overall versatility make this card playable? I'm not willing to write this off. I am willing to write this card off. <laughs> Every one of those abilities has some sliver of relevance. But I would cite numerous other cards that you could say the same thing about that just aren't good enough. This is an example of a card that's just not good enough for Vintage. You can make a case for any one ability sometimes, but also, what the heck deck are you playing this in that has black and green in it? Well, that's the, that's the rest in peace problem. See, to me, so in my, in my older set, in my recent set reviews, all but my most recent, I categorized every single Vintage card in one of four categories. Unplayable, uh, remotely playable. Uh, likely playable and then definitely playable. The definitely playable are the cards that I thought would appear in top eight and in the near future. Likely playables were cards that were would appear I thought could appear in top eight but might not. And then remotely playable are cards that were extremely fringe, were unlikely to appear in top eights but were theoretically vintage playable. And unplayables are cards I had 
you know, you could essentially compare it to existing cards and were strictly inferior. This is a card that I would put into actually either the second or the third category. I mean, I think that the, the, the key problem is the card that is, the, is the problem that you said. Where are you going to put this? I mean, you essentially have to play this in a, in a deck with black. I think that's pretty clear. You have to play this in a deck with black because the second ability is essential. Um, and there really aren't any sort of black base aggro decks. The aggro decks that exist are, are green-white. Now, if you have green-white-black, I just don't know if this if you'd find room for this card. It's it's graveyard disruption does matter. And I, I, we forgot to even mention the third ability is good against red. You can <laughs> immediately hit Golgari Grave Troll or Stinkweed Imp. I, I'm not. I, I actually the more I think about it, the more I like this card. I really do. I would be very surprised. I'm predicting zero. I'm, I'm I am actually surprised if you're going to give a non-zero number for this. <laughs> I just don't want to seem so pessimistic because I think. <laughs> A lot of potential. I don't know where it will fit. I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm just gonna go non-zero. I'll say one non-zero number. Well, that's good enough for me. You know, we've got another black-green card, another Golgari card right next to this. We may as well talk about Abrupt Decay. This is a I think this is a very cool and aggressively designed card, but I'm not sure if it is in the context of vintage. Abrupt Decay casts for black-green instant. Abrupt Decay can't be countered by spells or abilities. Destroy target non-land permanent with converted mana cost 3 or less. Now, there are certainly plenty of good targets for this card in Vintage. Dark Confidant, Key Vault, Oath of Druids, a number of spheres out of Workshop decks. I think the most standout part for me in this case is simply that for every one of those things you would want to destroy in Vintage, there's a card that does it better. This card is very versatile, but also it costs Golgari mana. It's not like Deathrite Shaman, where you could play it in just a green deck or just a black deck. You have to spend black-green to cast this, and I don't think anybody that's in those colors really wants to be doing that for that kind of mana. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that the limitations on this card are what what permanents exist in Vintage that you need a A to destroy that cost three or less, and B need to be uncounterable compared to uh, cards that can already do it for less mana. Mm-hmm. Another interesting feature, this is a twofold comment I have here. One, the fact that this can't hit four is huge because of Lodestone, Golem, and Jace. Yep. And also the fact that it says three or less for two mana might immediate, might make some players think, well, you can get value out of this. I'm playing two mana to destroy their three mana card. I got value, right? The problem is in Vintage, there's a big gaping hole in terms of three mana permanence. Yep. Blue decks have almost nothing that they pay three mana for. We've commented before about how effective Trinket Mage and even my even Mind Sensor are at filling that spot. You'll pay three mana for a Tinker. But... <laughs> sure. The permanent it produces is far more. <laughs> so control decks these days have almost no three mana permanence in play. Dread. Dredge have none, and workshops have very few. It's just an odd confluence yeah. of converted cost. I can't think. I mean, there are virtually no three mana permanents in Vintage. There's Trigon Predator and Vendillion Click in in Team Trinket yeah. Mage. There are a few two mana permanents. There's you know like cards like Oath of Druids or whatever. But but it gets to my other point, which is that you have one mana ways to destroy every almost every single. There are one, there's a one mana way to destroy almost every permanent in Vintage. Mm-hmm. At a minimum, bounce it. It's called Chain of Vapor, right? <laughs> um, 
But between plow and bolt, you've got most things covered that you need to, with with a couple of exceptions. Plow, bolt, and nature is just everything in existence. Um, yeah. You know, that, that right there is creature, artifact, land, and, and enchantment. The, the problem... And, and Jace. <laughs> and Jace. And, and this card costs two mana, where all those cards cost one. And the benefit is it's uncounterable. I'm saying, what's going to be countered? What do you need to destroy that you need to protect with that, shield with that ability? Workshops doesn't counter your ingot chewer, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Sure, Oath is going to protect its Oath. Maybe that's where you get some value. You know, you might as well just play Nature's Claim and back it up with the Spell Pierce. You're just as likely to resolve it, right? Yeah, and you're going to be much more grateful that when they played Orchard Mox Oath that you have a one-mana answer instead of a two. You're going to lose a lot of games because you can't cast this card before it matters. Yeah, I just... And when it comes to destroying Key Vault, Ancient Grudge is much better at doing that job for this cost. Or at two mana, I mean. Yeah, you get card advantage out of it. Exactly. This card is tailor-made for Legacy. Absolutely. This card's incredible in Legacy and destroying uh, uh, Counterbalance. And Tarmogoyf, of course. So I am predicting zero copies of Abrupt Decay. Are you in the same boat? I am predicting zero as well. Let's move on to our teammate Brian's friendly card, Detention Sphere. I was a little bit surprised to see him so complimentary about this card. I don't think it's irrelevant by any stretch, and it's definitely an improvement over Oblivion Ring, but Detention Sphere <laughs> is an enchantment. This is Obliet, man. <laughs> Detention Sphere is an enchantment for one white-blue. When Detention Sphere enters the battlefield, you may exile target non-land permanent not named Detention Sphere and all other permanents with the same name as that permanent. When Detention Sphere leaves the battlefield, return the exiled cards to the battlefield under their owner's control. So this is a combination hybrid of Oblivion Ring and Maelstrom Pulse, where it gets all copies of whatever you're targeting, and it can't target itself to prevent shenanigans. This isn't even remotely vintage playable. I have no <laughs> idea what Brian's talking about. I mean, there are just numerous cards that produce similar effects that see no vintage play. What reason do we have to think this this would see play? I think this is very similar, the analysis to Abrupt Decay, in that anything you would want to do that this card is flexibly good at doing there's already a one or two or in some cases zero mana answer that's just much more efficient, and that's what Vintage is all about. Yep, called Plow. <laughs> yeah. I will say that this card has pretty clever interaction against zombie tokens from Bridge from Below, but for that same effect, you have Engineered Explosives and Ratchet Bomb and Powder Keg at, at two colorless mana. Pyroclasm, Balance, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So I am predicting zero copies of Detention Sphere, are you? Zero. Okay. Let's talk Treasured Find. This regrowth variant is, hold on, it's coming up in my list here, a sorcery for black-green. Return target card from your graveyard to your hand. Exile Treasured Find. It's pretty much exactly regrowth for black mana instead of colorless, and it exiles itself. Regrowth is not a common feature in today's vintage metagame at all. Nope. And I would say that a more restrictive casting version, even if it's unrestricted, <laughs> pun intended, is simply not going to make its mark. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, let's just let's just canvas the regrowth effects in the format. They're legal. Mm-hmm. That have seen play or see play. There's obviously regrowth. There's yes. recalled, which used to be restricted because you could you know the reason that the, the these graveyard recursion effects were restricted is because they could find restricted cards themselves and replay them, which the DCI thought was abusive. So, you know, back in 1995 or 1996, I can remember playing you know, Ancestral Recall and Time Walk and then casting Regrowth on Time Walk and then casting Recall on the Regrowth, Ancestral, and Time Walk. 
Mm -hmm. So I can time walk, regrowth, time walk. There have been more of these things printed in recent years. There's natural, nature spiral, which is an aggressive attempt to get closer to regrowth, but it's problematic because it's only for permanence. There's nature's lore. There's eternal witness. There's uh, the, one of the dreams cards, I believe. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Nostalgic dreams, yes. Nostalgic dreams. Um, none of those cards have really seen vintage play outside of regrowth. And regrowth only rarely a quick search on morphling.d has turned up only one two three four five six appearances since may i was I th i'm surprised that even that many this year well three of those were in the same tournament last week <laughs> a tournament in mungia on april i'm sorry september 8 had three regrowths in the top eight. Oh, you know what i'll take it back there is one regrowth effect that has seen play and it's really a reclaim that free reclaim, the Frexian Mana reclaim, what's the name of that? Noxious Revival. There you go, which yeah. sees play in Oath. Yeah, that actually sees a lot of play. The question is, first of all, if you're recurring Time Walk or whatever, you're building a deck around Time Walk, is this better than Eternal Witness? Recurring Gush, is, there, is this the best way to do that? I tend to think that, you know, this is this is playable in the Gush deck. I mean, you can float Black Green Gush and then Treasure and find it. I mean, it's, it was one of those cards I put in, like, the remotely playable but I don't expect it to see top eight, at least not time soon, card. Steve, if regrowth were unrestricted right now, yeah. do you think it would be a four of, maybe a three of in some gush decks? Yes. Do you think then that the casting cost on this is so prohibitive that it takes that from possible three or four of down to just nothing? Yes. Do you, do you think the black man is the thing that does it? Well, you know, if, if it's hard to say, but regrowth were unrestricted. I would definitely build the gush deck with four of them. You know, I don't know. That's a really good question. Because those gush decks, of course, are not equally, but very much capable of producing GB to pay this as they are to producing G1 to pay regrowth, and they're playing regrowth. If regrowth was unrestricted, I would build a deck with four regrowth, but that doesn't necessarily mean it would be good. I don't know. What it like. <laughs> I don't know what it would be like. I mean, yeah, you I see your point. I see your point exactly. It's an interesting question. I think that obviously regrowth is worse. Is better than this. This is worse than regrowth. So to that to that extent, you know, it would be it would be an interesting experiment. It would be an interesting experiment to see how my gush deck would do with four regrowth. I mean, I would play cards like Imperial Seal to aggressively find both the ancestral and the time walk. Another thing though is you're not necessarily remember you're not chaining gushes unless you have a fast bonding play. Naturally. You know, it's not like you're aggressively using this, and and you don't really without ponder or brainstorm and merchant scroll. You sometimes take some time to find even the first gush. So what are you doing with this card in the meantime? I don't know. Trying to get lucky and replay Ancestral, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think that this card is definitely in the playable, maybe remotely playable category. I think your analysis of regrowth is right on. I think that players will be testing, at least to start, versions of gush decks that have maybe two or three of these in addition to their one regrowth. See, that's interesting. I think that... I think that um, Deathrite Shaman is better than this card. Fascinating. Obviously, completely different applications, but that's fascinating. Well, let's put our money where our mouth is. You go first on this one. Appearances? Zero. Zero. I'm going to go with one. I think that someone's. <laughs> I think someone's going to put together a version of a gush deck, or maybe something I'm not foreseeing, that actually has a couple of these in it, and, and they're going to succeed. That's funny. You've, you've inverted my Death Ride Shaman analysis. That's hilarious. Well, I think that my quick search of Morphling.D for regrowth has colored my opinion strongly. There are actually many more appearances of regrowth this year than I thought, so I know more people are trying it than I initially expected. I think some people probably play it just because it's restricted. That's fair. That's certainly fair. A lot of people have that allure. 
Noxious Revival seems to have a lot of play. Well, that's a horse of a different color, though. That's an efficiency issue as well. <laughs> it's it's a horse of a different color, huh? <laughs> so speaking of all these Golgari cards, let's go to a horse of a different color in Nivmagus Elemental. Now, this card is crazy unique. There has never been a card that did quite what this card does. For a single it mana, creature elemental, exile an instant or sorcery spell you control, colon, put two plus one plus one counters on Nivmagus Elemental, and it's a one-two. This is a one-drop guy, not very aggressively costed at one-two. The idea being you get spells of yours onto the stack and convert them into plus two plus two on this guy each time. And I know a lot of people, this obviously dovetails with the storm mechanic very well. If you have a say, Grape Shot on the stack with 10 copies or 9 copies that wouldn't be even remotely lethal, all of a sudden you remove all 10 copies of that to this guy and he gets plus 20 power. So there's that. Steve, do you think, especially in light of our analysis of Gutter Snipe in the last episode, do you think this there's any hope for this guy in terms of a storm kill? Do you think he has any value in a regular aggro deck? No, you know, I, I don't. But but the thing is, one limitation that I think is concerning is that you can only, again, exile instants or sorceries. Sure. You know, it's very limiting. You could chuck a creature or an artifact. You know, it would be a totally different. It would be a horse of a different color. Category. Yeah, a mid-game mox that you don't need. Yeah, exactly. Or a land or whatever. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, just a spell, a, a non-instant or sorcery spell. I think that, you know, this card compares unfavorably to Kiln Fiend, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we, made, we talked about this in the context of another Return to Ravnica card. Mm-hmm. If there is an efficient combo with this card, you could hold out hope. But I don't. I don't really see one. There's a way to sort of efficiently multiply copies of of spells. So, for example, it would be really cool if there was a really bad storm card that you could play. Then this would be very uh, potentially interesting, right? Can you can you do that? Yes, you can exile all the duplicates that storm produces. So, what you're saying is, if hypothetically there was a storm card that was very cheap, say one mana for an otherwise unusable effect, then that might give you a way to quickly pump yeah, this guy think... up. And that's why I think a lot of players immediately went to Flusterstorm because it is the cheapest is Storm card. Well, yeah, technically speaking, it is. It's There's no, there's no other card that costs fire, one mana that has the Storm. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. There are a couple that cost two, of course, Brain Freeze and Grape Shot. So it's not hard to get the effect of Storm in the Is It Colors for cheap. But the real question, of course, is, is that even good enough? You no, know, I, I hadn't really seriously considered Flusterstorm, and Flusterstorm is a playable card. Absolutely, but the, the, there's been a number of analyses on the Mana Drain, especially about how how good is it going to be. You play this guy out on turn one, then you, in theory, fight over something with Flusterstorm involved on your side, and you end up with superfluous Flusterstorm copies above and beyond what would be needed to counter their spell. So you feed the extras to this guy? It's not that hard to cast a Flusterstorm for, for like, four. You know, like, you could even Flusterstorm your own spell, right? Like you could play, <laughs> True. You could go Land, Gush, Mox, you know. No, you could go, you could go like, Mox, Gush, Flusterstorm. You know, one other spell in there, and you put all the Flusterstorm counters on this. You That makes him how much power? Eight, eight counters? Would give him eight counters? Well, in that scenario, you've played a Mox, a Gush, and a Flusterstorm, so it would get... Let's do a Preordain in there, too. Okay. You play Preordain, Mox, Gush, you're going to get four copies of Flusterstorm. I mean, three additional copies. Yeah, so put them all on this guy. 
that's eight power. You've turned that spell basically you t- these two cards into eight power plus his inherent one nine damage on turn two in theory, and and they're, it's permanent. So you have a nine a nine ten guy on the field. Reserve that. That's a good game. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I had not actually seriously considered that interaction. I I didn't had not been reading the analysis on the Mandarin, but it does seem to me that Storm is a huge synergy with this and. It has, as cards go that work well with Storm, this, it could be the best one for a number of reasons. And one of them is simply that it costs one. Yeah. The Storm mechanic, if you want to be super aggressive about it, but still have alternate wins, really does want cards that are very cheap. So you can play this on turn one and then try and go off on turn two. Or you can just have drawn this card in the middle of going off and play it for one mana to up your Storm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think Flusterstorm is the nuts with it, seems like. Seems good with Grape Shot. Yeah, Grape Shot seems like another possibility, although I'm I'm a little wary about that one. <laughs> well, you could. Here's a good one. You could, on turn two, you play this guy in turn one. On turn two, you play a Mox, a couple of Rituals, Grape Shot, and then Flusterstorm your Grape Shot for the kill. <laughs> Because as wow. soon as you play two, as soon as you play two storm spells in a turn, then your storm only needs to be. I'm, I'm doing the math in my head, but your storm only needs to be like three or four for the first one for it to be lethal. What about this? I mean, you go um, so turn one this guy, turn two Mox, repeal the Mox, Gush, Flusterstorm. Mox, repeal, Mox, Gush, Flusterstorm times five. Plus, you could play one other spell in there too, because uh, the repeal costs one. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to draw a card out of it. Yeah, and you might get another Mox out of the deal. So in that scenario, you have a Flusterstorm. You have five copies of Flusterstorm on the stack. You feed them to that guy, and he gets plus 10 power. Wow. He becomes a 10-11 creature. That's pretty monstrous. I'm sorry, he becomes an 11-12 creature. That is pretty monstrous. I don't know. I can't rule that out. That's pretty ridiculous. (laughs) That's pretty ridiculous. It doesn't seem to naturally fit into anything that currently exists in Vintage, but that is pretty absurd. One upside to that whole thing is that combo, quote-unquote, combo of Storm what? and Niv Magus Elemental is very tricky to disrupt, meaning you, you can't stop your opponent from feeding that guy once all those spells are on the stack. What this card sounds like? He sounds like the absolute most brutal card in the Delver Mirror. Interesting. Like, you play this guy, if you can somehow get... <laughs> you can somehow get, you know, deal with a blocker. You can really just murder someone very quickly with this card. You know, especially since you have, like, Lightning Bolt. You know, you throw a Lightning Bolt with their head or whatever, and, like, you probably have Mental Misstep as well. This just seems insane. <laughs> Very synergistic with Mental Misstep. This card might be really, really good in, in like, a Rug Delver deck. Wow. Synergistic with Misstep, synergistic with Snapcaster. You can just play Snapcaster for value in more circumstances just to put extra counters on this guy. I guess the question is, is he playable to have a Flusterstorm? Because you basically need a Flusterstorm to, to power this guy up. That's one, one of the things I was just about to ask. Are you thinking that you could play... Well, are you thinking you're just playing him for value by launching a one casting cost instant out of your hand at some point, putting the counters on him and make him a 3-4? Like what? Uh, lightning Bolt. You play this guy on one, and on turn two you just bolt your opponent, but instead of doing three to them, you put the counters on this guy, make him a 3-4, and start getting in for value on turn two for, with a 3-4? I don't know if I want to exile Lightning Bolt if I'm going to snap cast it back. Well... 
that's what I'm getting at, though, is I don't think that this card actually makes a very good value play in an aggro deck. I think it does with, with uh, Mental Misstep, though. Meaning you're going to misstep their spell and then feed it no, your like, you're misstep to this guy? No, like I'm going to go, I'm going to Lightning Bolt you, I'm going to Mental Misstep it, I'm going to eat the Mental Misstep with the Nib Magus, take six. Yeah, okay. You've taken three cards out of your hand to do six damage to me, and now you have a 3-4. And if I play Tarmogoyf... My, I, all I have to do is play any spell on this guy automatically bigger than goyf <laughs> yeah okay I'll play a spell oh, that's true that's true but you're dumping a lot of cards into him to get that position and this card might be really insane in delver the more i think about the more exciting this becomes in rug delver it can be a very good answer to lodestone golem too you just need to put two spells on the stack to make this guy uh five six if you can get this guy down and put two spells on the stack somehow through a lodestone golem he eats them now this is making me i'm going to go back and and add the, those two cards to my set review. <laughs> I, I, this card and Death Ride Shaman. Very interesting. Yeah, well, I'm glad we had this discussion. I thought that we were both going to write this guy off. Yeah, I thought this was going to. You're I, more energized now than I am. This is insane. I mean, this is so. This is really fast. I mean, this is really fast. From a categorical standpoint, I think that this card. I think that this card is playable. I just don't know if this is better than Kiln Fiend. I mean, Kiln Fiend is really sick. This guy costs half as much, and the bonus is permanent. So if you go turn one, if you go turn one, kill him. In Delver, you could go, God, I don't know, all kind of things on turn two, and just have a ton of damage with Kill him, right? <laughs> I mean, you could go. Realistically, though, what are you going to do? You're going to do Ponder and Lightning Bolt. No, no, no. You could go turn one, kill him, right? You could go turn one, kill him. Then you could go turn two, bolt your blocker. Preordain. Preordain, and gosh, take take ten. <laughs> That's ten damage. Except you're ending your second turn with a Mox and a Kiln Fiend in play. Yeah. No, I hear you. <laughs> so this guy this guy actually is maybe he's very reminiscent of Kiln Fiend. Maybe he's better than Kiln Fiend because he doesn't die. He immediately gets bigger butt. Yeah, which is huge. The fact that these counters are permanent and he has more toughness than power, I think, is enormous in the vintage context. Yeah. Wow. He can realistically outgrow Tarmogoyf reliably, I think, huh? as well as Lodestone Golem. Oh, yeah. And he provides a very good threat against Jace as well. If you have turn one this guy and your opponent has turn one Jace, they need to seriously consider bouncing this guy. You play him on turn one and your opponent goes Lodestone Golem and you go, wait, I'm going to force your Lodestone Golem? Then I'm going to exile my force. him. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, I think if you look up greed in the dictionary, <laughs> that scenario is next to it. All right, let's talk. I am predicting. Hold on a second. I'm I'm struggling with whether I want zero or one. <laughs> uh, I really am not behind this guy, but your point about its potential in Rug Delver is well made. I'm going to stick with zero. I'm going to I'm going right. to stick to my that guns. Allows, I don't think this guy's going to do it. That allows me to go to one. You and your Price is Right comparison. <laughs> if you had said one, I probably would have. Said oh, geez, come on. That's the hey. You could always make me go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to make you go first every time. Okay. Let's talk then about Rakdos Charm, or as a lot of people like to call it, Roxo's Charm. Roxo's Charm. Who says that? That's funny. <laughs> so Oscar Tans would appreciate that. That's right. Rakdos Charm for black-red, as you can expect. Instant. Choose one. Exile all cards from target player's graveyard, or destroy target artifact, or each creature deals one damage to its controller we've always kind of said in advance this has been going on for a while i think that any charm that was going to be playable in vintage one of its modes needed to be shatter 
and now we have it. And in addition to that, we get to exile Dredge's graveyard or Snapcaster deck's graveyard if we want. This card is pretty much clearly playable in terms of its effects, meaning it has relevance against shops and dredge, and in the two-thirds of the Grixis colors, meaning it means it, it has effects that those kind of Grixis control decks definitely want and are rarely main decking these days, or I mean very slimly main decking. The third ability to deal one damage to creatures' controllers is, is pretty darn marginal. That will rarely, if ever, be relevant. Steve, do you think that a Grixis control deck can afford to run one of these cards main deck? Do you think it's a sideboard card? Do you think it's playable at all? I, I do think this this card is playable in the sense that does it have a configuration of benefits against a cost that is efficient enough for vintage play? The answer is yes. Um, I think the question with this card, as with many of these awkward gold cards, is do they have a home? That That's that's the different question. I, I'm pretty confident saying this card has a home in Grixis control. No. This is one of those cards that does something like what you said about Rest in Peace earlier. It allows you to reconfigure your sideboard. You have, say, currently today, you might have yeah. seven or eight cards in your board for Dredge and then another four or five to go with. I don't think so. I think shops. this can overlap that by one or two. I think this is the inverse of Visit Charm. Like, is it Charm, which we talked about in the last podcast, offers a really a range of you know, situational benefits, advantages. This mm-hmm. card does, but... I think in each case, the efficiency is of the essence, um, is more important. Uh, not to say that Spell Pierce at one isn't, isn't critical, but I think uh, a two-mana, particularly two-specific colored mana artifact destruction spell is not playable. Just not playable Okay. Uh, in, in, in the abstract. You know, you're, it's so important to have efficiency there. What about the comparison to Ancient Grudge? Y- at least Ancient Grudge you can play for off a box and a land on turn. You know what I mean? Whereas mm-hmm. when we talk about this being gold, I, I think that the uh, I'm actually going to say that I don't think this is playable. I'm, I, 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 this is the remote playable card, and it's and I and the reason I say remotely playable is because I don't think it's I don't think it's playable in the current metagame, but I do think it is theoretically playable in some vintage future vintage iteration. Mm-hmm. Well, I am a little more optimistic about this being castable. I think the comparison to Ancient Grudge. While it's not literally one for one, I mean, Kevin, you're the one. I think it tells you that this card is definitely castable. You're the one who set out our, our framework, right? That that two mana casting cost spells are essentially two and a half mana. That's I definitely agree with that. But in the scenario where you're talking about, say, fighting a turn one lodestone golem, most of the time you can't play ancient grudge on the first turn anyway. Most of the time in that type of scenario, you're going to need two lands and a mox. And so if that's the critique, then I believe that this card is castable on turn two against the Lodestone Golem for Landland Mox. Now, it's not great, meaning you're exposing two duels to do that, and I've already gone on record about how bad that can be. So I don't think this card is an instant add to any deck. I think that Grixis control players today are should look at this seriously, and many will. And I think some players, like, say, the Brian DeMars of the world, might reach the conclusion that this is everywhere they want to be in their main deck, that this card gives them a really effective anti-dredge mechanic in the game one, in addition to hedging more against shops than Nile Spellbomb does today. And I'm completely on the same page with you in terms of the converted mana co- or the casting cost. Sorry. The cost here is high, but you gain a lot in terms of flexibility. I can definitely see people replacing Nile Spellbomb with this in their main deck in those lists in some configurations. Now, I don't think it's going to become the standard. Far from it. 
But if you're thinking that Niv-Magus Elemental is good, say, in a rug deck against other creature decks, and it's got some place against Lodestone Golem, I think a similar sort of comment works here. This card has game. It's playable. In some cases, you'll be greatly rewarded for the flexibility it offers. I don't think it's going to become very common, though. Yeah. I'm comfortable going first on predictions here, and I'm going to say a non-zero. I'm going to say one. I'm saying zero. All right. Very cagey we're becoming in our old age. <laughs> I do think you mentioned Slitherhead. Slitherhead is one that I wasn't sure I wanted to talk about, but if you insist, we can go. Slitherhead, I'm making some notes about our uh, Rakdos charm. <clears throat> Slitherhead is a really cool creature for a single Golgari mana. <laughs> My f- favorite feature about it, all game function aside, is the fact that it's a creature plant zombie, which is just an awesome creature type. Slitherhead is a 1-1 the text box says simply scavenge zero. So this is the only creature with the scavenge ability where the cost is zero, meaning you can pay zero mana, exile this card from your graveyard, put a number of plus one plus one counters equal to this card's power on target creature, scavenge only as a sorcery. So if you mill this guy into your graveyard, you can remove him for zero mana and put a counter on one of your other creatures. My opinion is that this card is situationally playable in Dredge. Certain configurations of Dredge, this card has a lot of flexible uses. It's eminently castable, it removes to Icarid, it removes to Unmask, and if you have enough of them in your deck, just by milling your deck, you get free additional power to the tune of two, three, maybe four damage and that could be the difference between winning now and winning next turn in Dredge sometimes. What's the name of the zombie that was recently printed that's a 2-1 for 1 mana that you graveyard under certain circumstances? Yeah, a Gravecrawler, the one that you can replay if you have a zombie in play. Yeah, Gravecrawler. I think like he competes for the same slot in a sense. Uh, I, I like Gravecrawler better than Slitherhead. I mean, sure, Slitherhead... I mean, Slitherhead, most of the time, you know, look, every card in the dredge deck is a very important slot. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, Slitherhead is just going to either fuel an Icarid, be chucked to an Icarid, or is going to make some random zombie plus one plus one, which means almost nothing. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it's worth the slot, particularly over a Gravecrawler, which I think is actually good. Uh, I would mention that you're downplaying the plus one plus one as though you're only going to be playing one of them. But don't forget that Dredge is pretty skilled at dredging two-thirds of its library, which means you're not getting one, you're getting three. (laughs) So when you talk about three in the context of what Dredge normally does, then you start comparing it to a free lightning bolt out of your library. Well, I will say this. It does make a better use of Uncle Draghi's head than he ever did. (laughs) It certainly does. (laughs) I do love that flavor text. So I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you mentioned it, I think that Slitherhead is fringe playable. I agree with you in the current environment that it's just not worth the slot. But I'd rather have Gravecrawler. And nobody plays Gravecrawler. But I do think that this card is very versatile. This this card is like Dredge's Charm. <laughs> this card <laughs> does a whole bunch of different things that the Dredge deck just wants a card to do. It's a cheap black creature that you can cast or remove, and it has an effect once it's in the graveyard. It's like Dredge's Charm. You can cast it on one, you can sack it to Dread Return, and then scavenge it to put a plus one, plus one counter on some other creature. That's that's value right there. But ultimately, I don't think it's worth the slot right now. It's just not good enough at any one of the things it does to be to take the place of some Dredge card, which is very good at its role. I think that's right. So prediction time. Uh, boy, I really... 
I really want to go non-zero on this, but I'm just not seeing it. I think people are going to test this card and then cut it. So I'm going to go with zero. If Gravecaller has zero, I'm definitely saying zero on this. Well, to be perfectly honest, I didn't search for Gravecrawler. Let me do a quick search. Gravecrawler in vintage on Morphling.d, zero results, yeah. Okay, so we're going to go with the double goose eggs on Slitherhead. That brings us to the end of our Return to Ravnica assessment. We now have the full set spoiled. Steve, you've done your set review. What do you think about this set for vintage on the whole? No, it's a it's a very different set than Ravnica was. Just from a mechanic perspective, the mechanics are much weaker, much more diluted. I mean, I, like Scavenge is a pale imitation of Dredge. <laughs> By design. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, though, that I think is, you know, there's, so there's a lot of, like, uncounterable stuff in here, which is interesting. But what's weird is that in, in Ravnica, you had, like, some big splashy effects and really potent cards. Here, you've almost got, like, the, the central focus is utility stuff. You know, like these charms and, you know, some really good removal and some really good hosers. That's why the way I frame the set in my opening nar- you know, uh, narrative of the set review is not a return to Ravnica, but really a revolt from Ravnica. It's almost a rejection of the principles of Ravnica. And there are some seeds, the, sort, the sorts of cards that we see here. I think like Demir Cutpurse is like the prototype of the, of the cards that we see in the set, which are cards that are almost but not quite vintage playable, but nonetheless interesting and worth talking about. You know, like I think like uh, the, the Regrowth, and the uh, Slitherhead are both in that mold, uh, and potentially even the Elemental. So I, th- I think, you know, it's it's very hard to say because the cards are so borderline. You don't know whether they will end up being playable or not. But my sense is this card is, this set is slightly on the, on the underwhelming side. It's got a lot of interesting cards, a card worth discussing, but there isn't really um, the marquee card outside of Dryad Militant and Rest, rest uh, in Peace, which are quite characteristically fringe or marginal cards. You know, they're not going to be, they're not like a Graph Digger's Cage or a Snapcaster Mage or, or things like that. So I think it's hard to put this set in sort of a broader context. I mean, you you have, I sent you a list of all the playables from each block. How do you think this, this set shapes up in comparison? I generally agree with what you're saying. I believe that this set has more cards that will sneak up on us over time than many other sets, than most other sets. All these charms at two mana, all these utility creatures at one mana, the Dryad, Militant, the Deathrite Shaman, the Niv-Magus Elemental, all this value plays at one and two mana, like Vandal Blast and Abrupt Decay, Rest in Peace. I think a lot of these cards are going to sneak up on us in the future of Vintage. I think that this set may have the most sneaky impact on the format in the long run, that we're going to have a bunch of sideboard cards out of this that we come to take for granted two years from now or three years from now when we say, hey, I really could use a Shatter that also exiles my opponent's graveyard. Innistrad was the sneaky set. I mean, Innistrad had like Delver and Laboratory, I mean, cards that snuck up on people. I mean, I saw Laboratory Maniac, but you know, aside from like Delver, people did not predict that was going to be vintage playable. Delver is a good example of a sneaky card, but I'm thinking in terms more like utility. I think yeah. you're going to see a number of cards from this set in sideboards and one-ofs in main decks that just fit a really unique role in the long run. I don't know. I, I tend to think that whenever we say that, it's really a, a nice way of, say, way of saying these cards are good enough, but we don't think they're going to see play. <laughs> I, I, I think that they are, in theory, vintage playable. I think there's a lot of cards, but will not see vintage play. Well, and our list today especially certainly echoes that. If you take out Rest in Peace... The sum total of predictions from today's group is three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> seven appearances in nine cards. 
that's pretty low. But I really do think that we're doing a lot of hedging on cards like Rakdos Charm, Slitherhead, Niv-Magus Elemental. I think Vandal Blast, I think a lot of these cards are going to make their mark over the longer term rather than next month. I mean, well, you in last our last set review, we talked about Judge's Familiar, Goblin Electromancer, cards like that. I, I think that these cards exemplify what I see as the central feature of the set, which is, like you said, value, or I would call high u- utility cards. Yeah. But it's, it's very different than what Ravnica, the original Ravnica set offered. I agree, very different. And I think it's funny that you make an interesting observation about the title, Return to Ravnica. There's no way, well, in the current R&D environment and their marketing scheme, I would be very surprised if they would have actually titled this set something like Revenge of Ravnica or, or Revolt from Ravnica or something that talked about going against it. I think that they were trading very strongly, obviously, on nostalgia when they said Return to Ravnica. They've been pitching the thing as we're going back here, both from a story standpoint, but from a game design standpoint, from a community standpoint almost. I mean, not almost, but the, they this set has returned to in so many different ways. Yeah. That I think it's funny that you've observed that they really are eschewing a lot of what the values and mechanics were from the set, but it's kind of subtle. They're not talking about the fact that they're going against all of that. Of course, our perspective is is not exactly objective. <laughs> That's true. Vintage, That's true. Vintage standpoint. And I'm pretty sure that no one from R&D has done the kind of analysis on this set's impact on vintage that we're doing right now. I think if our next podcast will be on the ban and restricted list. Given the fact that Burning Wish has now been unrestricted, and it's pretty much the, was the consensus card for unrestriction, why don't we pose two questions? First, what card from Return to Ravnica do you think will be will see the most play in Vintage? And second, uh, please let us know what card you think is the most unrestrictable card in Vintage. Thank you for listening to episode 18 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you Many Insane Plays. Ringgit is not safe protection game! <laughs> <laughs>